0: Thursday
1: night, and this is Farage at Large, live from Hull. Please welcome your host, Nigel Farage.
2: Good evening, everybody. It's Farage at live, live from here in Hull. We've got a big audience. They're very enthusiastic. We're going to talk about the cost of living. We're going to talk about fishing, of course, Hull being on the North Sea, Should we put super taxes on the oil companies? And joining me for Talking Points, Dean Windass, the man who scored the goal that got Hull City into the Premier League. So lots to come. (laughs) Good evening. It's Farage at Large, if you can hear me. Live from Hull, we've got a full house and a lot to talk about. Hull, Labour members of Parliament represent Hull, have done for a very, very long time. But the local council last week was taken back by the Liberal Democrats. Despite that, we are in very, very strong Brexit country. Be in no doubt about that. Some parts of Hull, over 70% of people did vote Brexit. But the real issue here, above all, is the state of the economy, the cost of living, the impact it's having on people's lives. Gas bills, electricity bills, energy dominating. Food, of course, following up pretty rapidly behind as well. And we had this morning some pretty grim... Economic figures about growth, which is slowing down to nothing in this country at the same time as inflation heads toward 10%. It's called stagflation. We haven't seen it in this country since the 1970s. And the bad news is it's probably here for quite a long time. At least I think that. The Bank of England have misread this all the way through the government and the opposition. None of them have really understood the impact their own policies have had. It's not just Mr. Putin, but their own policies have had. On inflation rates in this country. So what is government to do? And one of the proposals that's been put out there by the Labour Party is to put a super tax on BP, on Shell, on the oil companies who are making big, big profits at the moment. Now there are some who think it's a great idea. Labour pushing this idea hard. Other opposition parties believing it's the right thing to do. I was very surprised when the BP chief said that if this happened, his investment plans for the UK wouldn't change. But then his name is Bernard Looney, so I'm not sure. (laughs) I take what he's saying too seriously. I don't think super taxes on oil companies are the right approach. I'll tell you why. There's been almost no investment in the North Sea. We're sitting right on the North Sea tonight. Almost no investment in the North Sea for the last several years. Just now, we're beginning to see firms coming back. My view is... We shouldn't need to import gas or oil from anywhere else in the world. We should be self-sufficient in these products and, in the process, provide tens of thousands of jobs. And that applies not just to the North Sea, but to the massive gas reserves that we have in Lancashire, Cumbria, and into West Yorkshire as well. I think supertaxing these companies, driving them away, would actually stop investment in this country and would be a big, big Mistake. Now, joining me, GB News' political editor, Darren McCaffrey, who's been here on the Humber Bridge, I think, for most of the day. Um, Not not looking a little bit windswept. The politics of this.
3: Fascinating. So,
2: Rishi Sunak appears to be quite tempted to put these big super taxes on the oil companies. Rishi Sunak, who says he's a low-tax kind of guy, whilst he puts everyone's taxes up the whole time. Uh, Boris Johnson sort of... I'm not sure, he caught in the middle of this.
4: Yeah, I think caught in the middle, because there is a genuine discussion within government now about whether this is the right way forward. Having essentially kind of ruled it out. It's now, well it's not off the table. Mm. And I think one of the things that's holding it back actually is the fact that the Labour Party have been arguing for it the last couple of months. The government does not want to be seen to be following uh, them. But really interesting today, Robert Halfon, a really senior Conservative MP chair of the Education Select Committee, he frankly came out and said it's the right thing to do. He argues it's a conservative thing to do. Points to the fact that Margaret Thatcher uh, did it and David Cameron uh, too. I-, I think from the government's point of view, you know, they look at these profits, they realise that the public look at these profits and and think why are they earning billions and billions of pounds, why are the bosses earning tens of millions of pounds at the same time where lots of people frankly can't afford to heat their homes or indeed to pay for their grocery shopping. And there is a real temptation there. It will raise money. As you say, The all companies argue it could stifle sometimes investment but also have an impact on pension funds, an impact on dividends for ordinary people up and down the country as well. But Frankly, the bottom line is the government realises it's going to have to do more. What it's done to date, unsurprisingly, has not been enough and it's going to have to go further.
2: And on taxes, I mean, there's been talk now maybe they'll start cutting taxes having just put them up. Is that realistic?
4: Uh, It's possible, again, because I think the government, a bit like the Bank of England, have been behind the curb on all of this. And there is much talk that this 1p cut on income tax that's due to come in uh, next year could be brought forward to this year. But let's be honest and very frank about this. First of all, the government isn't a bind in all of this. It does realise that millions of people are suffering in this country, suffering like they have not done for years and years and years, Nigel. But at the same time... There is real concern about chucking more money at this. Boris Johnson said the way out of this is not to spend more money. And why is that? It's because we've imported inflation, haven't we, from the rest of the world. The problem is we could now make that worse. If we loosen the taps let them more money flow, yeah. you can drive inflation up further. And rather than this being an issue with to deal with for the next year or two, you could get into a situation where inflation stays stubbornly high. But that also means the government has to be honest with people. It has to be honest that the way to bring well, that down inflation... that would not it? I mean, everybody be thrilled. Is, you know. to, is, is, is frankly, that going to have to be some economic pain. Yeah. That means interest rates are going to have to go up, taxes may have to stay stubbornly high, and, frankly, that this country, and we saw this today, you right and saying this, this country's facing a recession later on this year, potentially. Later on this year, yeah. we could see two uh, periods of economic decline. And this is really, really tricky for the government. And there is no, and let's be fair to the government, there is no easy answer. But there is certainly a real political momentum that something has to be done, and has to be done soon.
2: Darren, thank you very much indeed. And I can see it. I can see the temptation. It all, sounds, it all sounds very easy. Tax the companies that are making lots of money and that will magically reduce everybody's bills. I really don't think it actually will. I think what might reduce people's bills is us, like America, becoming energy self-sufficient. And they are paying much less for their gas bills, much less for their electricity bills than we are. That is where we need to go and I believe that very, very strongly. Now, one story that absolutely refuses to go away is Partygate. You might have thought you'd heard the last of it. Another 50 fines issued to those who attended a Downing Street Christmas party today. Mr and Mrs Johnson not included in this tranche, but there are more parties under investigation. It seems unlikely to me they won't get more fixed penalty notices. And for a moment of time, Sir Keir Starmer was very smug on all of this because he, of course was the man who was the paragon of moral virtue and setting standards for the rest of the country until it turns up 30 of them had a booze-up and a takeaway curry. Um, And it's tempting, I think, for the public to think, well, they're just about as bad as each other and maybe there's more to worry about. Well, joining me, Anna Riley, GB News' Yorkshire and Humber reporter. Good evening. (laughs) Now, Anna... know you've been out and about today... Talking to people on the streets here in Hull. What was it what was your impression of what their priorities really are?
5: Well, Nigel, Party Gay initially people were, were shocked, saddened, annoyed, you know, they've given up things like weddings, funerals, parties, important moments. Family Christmas. Family Christmas, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Um and they were Frustrated that, you know, the government aren't following the the rules that they put in place themselves But now, speaking to people on the streets of Hull, they've heard enough They want to focus on the cost of living, that's what's hitting their pockets, heating or eating And I spoke to some people, I think we've got some clips Yeah,
2: let's have a look, let's
4: have a look Yeah, it's just uh, the time has passed I, I feel miffed still, but I think the focus has maybe moved to somewhere else now We've got more important things to deal with, but I mean at this I mean times like this you think people should be a bit more responsible. I'm back to our whole trust
5: thing, how can we trust people to like keep us safe if they're not sticking to the rules of being a like a proper MP and stuff like that? No, I'm not interested at all because I think there's
6: far more serious things in the world going on um, than whether somebody's
5: had a party or not.
3: I think it's burnt out now. Uh, I think it's gone on far 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 too long. Uh, and it really needs to be uh, put to death. Good on them if they get caught, but people in it.
5: It's not queerer than folk. <laughs> Hypocrites. And the fan isn't enough. Just double standards. That's about it, I'm going. <laughs> they shouldn't do it, we know that they shouldn't do it, but they are they have done it. But move on now, because, I mean, you can't just keep going on about the same the same thing, because nothing's going to change, is it?
2: You know what I mean? Well, either way, Anna, whatever those responses, it isn't going to go away. Partygate is going to keep coming back over the course of the next weeks, maybe even months, and we've got the Sue Gray report to come and all the rest of it. Politics in Hull. Fascinating, isn't it? Massive Leave vote, yet they still vote for Labour MPs, who were Remainers, And then they put back in charge of the council, with their wonderful cycle lanes and many other great ideas, the... Oh, aren't they popular here? (laughs) That's the one thing Hull's got in common with London. They're not popular there either. But the the Liberal Democrats, the most remain or even rejoin party, now back in charge of the council here. Is that because... um, And there's not a single Conservative now sitting on the local council. So, have Labour done so badly in these local ele- or relatively badly in these local elections here, because there's a feeling they've been there too long, they're too complacent? What was it that pushed that Lib Dem vote?
5: Yeah, 11 years that that Labour have been in, so it's a a monumental change for the new Lib Dems to come in. I think a lot of it was political apathy. There was only a 23.5% turnout in the local election, so people just felt like, you know, they weren't interested locally. But looking (laughs) on a national scale, I think it was a bit of a protest vote as well. They didn't like what Labour were doing. They didn't like what the Conservatives were doing. The Conservatives did lose the seat to Labour. Um, And, yes, cycle lanes definitely played into a lot of it as well, the <laughs> congestion in the area.
2: Well, Anna, thanks ever so much for being our Yorkshire and Humber reporter, and I'll be back here before too long to see you again. Thank you. Thank you. Now, the the work from home, Row, just goes on and on and on, and it's very much being led by quite senior civil servants who are saying things like that work... Is no longer a place. That it's condescending of the government to ask civil servants to go back to their offices. Well, I really don't think it is. I think people need to get back to their place of work. I get it. You know, a computer programmer perhaps can work from home. Well, somebody who perhaps knows more about this and what we need to do is Will Draper, director of Shaw Group, from Hull, based in Hull, a success story from Hull. So well done, you. <clears throat> Thank you. So, as a recruitment company, what is now this mix? Do workers think they've now got a right to be at home for two days a week or three days a week? How does it work, Will?
0: So, you know, our office team, um, we've been working from the office post this pandemic for for a while now. We've been stuck in the offices. um, And we've found in the way that we run our business in collaborative working problem-solving how best to service our clients that being in front of one another all the time It's more effective. It's more efficient. You'd never have guessed would you? No, absolutely <laughs> um, Well, all about relationships sharing ideas uh, coming together and when you're trying to do that over a telephone or, or a video call as useful as they are and you know an element of flexibility is great But um, being in that environment together all at the same time is it, definitely the way that we need to continue working our business
2: well, I feel that too, and I have to say the government were talking about putting sort of enshrining in law the principle of work from home. They've dropped that out of the Queen's speech, which I think is a very good thing. Um, employment locally, Will. Unemployment rates in Hull slightly higher than the rest. Not, not dramatically, but slightly higher. But certainly the wind energy companies, they've been providing
0: quite good jobs here. We feel that there's, uh, there's plenty of jobs available here, and it's trying yeah. to get the, the right level of training, the right skill set put into the, into the local environment to, to allow people to take those jobs. Um, we've recently invested in a training centre within our own business um, specifically to take in people um, from college levels, from, from job centres and give them that skill set so they can have a career in, in one, of the, one of the industries or one of the sectors that we work in. Uh, and that's been really successful. So, um,
2: so the economy in Hull, jobs in Hull, not all bad news? No, no definitely not. There's, there's lots of opportunity out there. Yeah. yeah, but what about the skills? Why are we not teaching people skills? Why are we encouraging so many to go to university to do social sciences
0: and what, for three years and then to come out and then still need to try and find
2: and with, a job and with debt round their neck? Where are the technical colleges? Where are yeah. the proper apprenticeships? That's I mean, I, I think that's where well, we're it. And that's
0: one of the skill sets we've tried to bring in by opening our training centre, employing our own staff to teach, and bringing in people on a regular basis to to upskill them. Well, Will Draper, I have to say. Many
2: congratulations to Shaw Group. You've done incredibly well, very successful and a shining example of what Hull can do and Hull can produce. Thank you for joining us on the show. (laughs) In a moment, in a moment we will talk about Hull's fishing industry, what it did in the past, what it's doing now and why the Brexit deal isn't really quite as good as it could be. See you in a minute. back, everybody. Now, some reactions that have come in from you at home to this idea, should we super tax the oil companies? And Karen says to me, I don't believe that money taken from the oil companies by the government will find its way back into the pockets of the public. No, nor do I. I'm pretty cynical about that, too. Mark says a super tax on companies will have the same effect as a super tax on the wealthy in the 1970s. It'll provide short-term revenue, but very soon... They will all set up overseas, and that's my biggest fear. And Harry says, helpfully, there should be a super tax placed on the government to stop it wasting taxpayers' (laughs) hard-earned cash, which I think is very good. Now, of course, we are in this historic port city of Hull, and fishing was a mega industry here, and just not not that long ago, just a few decades ago, up until the early 70s, fishing was huge in Hull. Now, I'm joined now by Ron Wilkinson, chairman of the Fishing Heritage Charity, Stand Hull Heritage, and by Vic Wealdon, and both of you gentlemen, trawler men, Hull born and bred, fishing industry yes. in the blood, yes. and... Well, you're a very popular group, clearly, and yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, everyone knows, over the years, many men lost at sea from Hull, yeah. that far distant fleet that you were involved in, a ve- one, of, one of the most dangerous jobs, yeah. actually, yeah. that anybody could do. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Ron, in a sense, we're not going to get the waters of Iceland back, are we? No. I mean, that isn't going to happen. No. Uh, but there is still an ambition, I understand, in this port, to have a far distant fleet. Yes. And so what is... is, Because, you know, Brexit, if you think about it, one of the big debates in Brexit, and I was involved in this debate, was that we've got Norway across the water with a 200-mile exclusive economic zone. They are in charge of all the fish that are caught in those waters, and if a Scottish boat or English boat wants to go there, they've got to pay a licence or, you know, get a quota to do it. It hasn't worked out that way for us, has it?
6: No, I mean, the most recent uh, contact that we've had in that respect is the Kerkeller. The Kerkeller had a quarter for fishing in, in, uh, around the Norwegian coast and off at Bear Island. Unfortunately, with Brexit, they, we no longer be, became a European country, so that, uh, that um, idea that they could still fish in, in the waters... That the as a European country no longer existed, so they lost the right to fish off Norway, and that's why they're in the predicament. And that's a now. big
2: boat, I mean, a, a very important well, yeah. boat, yeah. And yet, if you think about it, you know, we buy a lot of Norwegian fish, yep. so if the government really cared about this, there's a deal there to be done, isn't there?
6: Well, you would think so, you would think so, but I mean, you know, as ex fishermen, we know. Uh, in the past, there's been attempts to do deals over different things, um, over the fishing uh, limits, the cod wars off Iceland, yep. and we lost every one. Mm. We, we, we've never won an argument over the fishing. No, because,
2: well, ever. I mean, you know, the French government, I mean, Vic, the French government stand up for their fishermen. Yep. They do. I, mean, I mean, they do, you know, I mean. And
6: the fishermen stand up for themselves as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, don't they ever? Yes. They keep blocking so, the port. <laughs> <that's right. Yeah. laughs> Disrupting well, we should have done that. Well,
2: I <laughs> don't know. Maybe that's <laughs> right. But, I mean, <sighs> there's talk now, if we sort out the Northern Ireland mess, mm. of the Brexit deal going and reverting to a no-deal Brexit. That would be good for fishing, wouldn't it? Because well, the deal that was negotiated
6: yeah. was rubbish. You would hope so, but uh, it, I don't know whether the, the passion is there from the government to resurrect the fishing industry in this area.
2: Well, let me put a, a point to you, right? If the government was actually to get us back control mm-hmm. of what is rightfully ours, mm-hmm. would there be the will in this city of Hull to rebuild the fishing industry? I
6: think there would be from the citizens of Hull. But then w- what we're looking at is, is megabucks. The care the carcaller itself costs well over £50 million yeah. to build. So if you're building trawlers of daddy I'll it's a big investment. Now, where does it come it, from? It, it may be that you would need to look at, um, at different types of vessels. Mm. I mean, yeah. we've always been a distant water fleet, mm. big ships. Yes. Um, whereas Grimsby, they had a home water, a middle water and a, and a distant... Yeah, place.
2: they had, you know, the 10-metre trawlers mm. as well, yeah. as, the,
6: as, well yeah. as the big boats. And we could maybe fish around our maybe own we could do that.
2: Well, all I can tell you guys is I, I, it must be very depressing, mm. having been in this industry, Uh, to see the way government has let you down, I mean, really over the last 50 years, in the most terrible way. But I still think that at some point, I think think there are parts of Brexit that are unfinished. I think the British public... Well, you saw the reaction you guys got when you came on a moment ago. The British government actually, in its heart, is behind you. They know what's right. So keep the faith, and we'll sort this out in the end, I promise. (laughs) All right? We'll do our best, I promise. Gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. (laughs) Now hold on to your hats for this one. This is my What the Farage moment of today. A bald man who was... It's not a joke. A bald man who was working as an electrician at work was ab- abused. He was called a bald so-and-so. <laughs> now of course we're living in an age where you can't say anything to anybody, just in case they take offence. Anyway, he was called a bald so-and-so, there was a row. Uh, he finished up losing his job, and he went to an industrial tribunal. And the industrial tribunal has ruled that calling a man bald is sexual harassment.
6: Oh. Oh
2: my God. I'm not making this up. It's sexual harassment because there are far more men that go bald than women, therefore it's an anti-male thing. Now bit of good news for Hull. In the league table of 11 regions of male baldness, (laughs) Hull is right down at the bottom, near the bottom of number eight, so there are fewer people in Hull likely to get compensation from their employer for being bald. But there we are. Okay, now, I love Barrage the Farage. I do it every evening. I get questions that come in to me from members of the audience. I never, ever, ever see the questions before. I never peek, I never cheat, but it's much more fun coming to Hull and doing it live. And, Lisa, you are first up with Barrage the Farage. Good
5: evening. Thank you. Hello, Nigel. Um, Given that Sinn Féin now has a majority to govern Northern Ireland... Do you think that Boris will be happy to see the North and South unified? Um, This would perhaps get rid of the protocol issue and save the rest of the UK funding it. Well,
2: I think this. uh, It's a slight myth to think that that Sinn Féin have swept the board in Northern Ireland. They haven't. Their vote share was 1% up. Mm -hmm. It's still lower than 30%. Mm -hmm. I think that's worth uh, thinking about. Mm-hmm. The reason you've got the headlines is unionism is split. Mm-hmm. There were three unionist parties mm-hmm. contesting that election, and frankly, they all need their heads knocked together like school <laughs> kids. Um, uh, look, I... Honestly, I do not think the people in Northern Ireland will vote to leave the United Kingdom. I don't believe they will. It'll mean joining the Euro. It'll mean rejoining the European Union with, with various hoops to go through. Mm-hmm. It'll mean losing the National Health Service. Yeah. Which the Republic doesn't have, and even though the NHS has its faults, it's still there. So I don't think it's going to happen. Um, Johnson himself, does he really care about Northern Ireland? No. Did he tell us the truth no. about Northern Ireland, that there would be no border in the Irish Sea? My view, Lisa, on it is a part of the, you know, a legitimate, full part of the United Kingdom has, by a bad Brexit deal, And you saw that with the fishing guys I was just talking to. Well, they were the two worst parts of it. Has, through a bad Brexit deal, almost been annexed and taken from us. Mm -hmm. And I think the government should stand up very firm in the next few days and override those provisions. And it's easy to do because it threatens being able to form a government in Northern Ireland. If they got rid of it, I think the DUP would work with Sinn Féin. It threatens the Good Friday Agreement. And, and the peace that we've held, relative peace that we've had for 25 years because it breaches the principle of consent and because the European Union have not acted in good faith at any point with this agreement. So the only thing to do with the Northern Irish protocol is to tear it up and say to the EU, do your worst and you know what, it won't be a problem, BMW, Audi and Mercedes still want to sell their cars in Thank this country. You. All right? That's my view. <laughs> OK. <laughs> Second up,
6: I've got Andrew. Andrew, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. My question, Jacques Barrot, José Manuel Barroso, Her- Herman Van Rompuy, oh. Jean-Claude Juncker, of all the people you've upset in the European Parliament, which was your personal favourite? <laughs> well,
2: <laughs> that's a question. I think it has to be Herman Van Rompuy. Yeah who became known as Rumpy Pumpy by the British press. <laughs> and everyone said I'd called him Rumpy Pumpy. I hadn't, but they just said I had. Um, when you give a speech in public, and people hate speaking in public, and they tend to read from notes, you know, at a wedding or a christening or whatever. And I always say to people, just throw the notes away. Just be yourself. Say how you feel. And I always do that. The trouble is, you don't quite know what you're going to say. And, and, and I had this idea of saying, who are you? But where I got... You have the charisma of a damp rag
1: <laughs>
2: and the appearance of a low-grade <laughs> bank clerk. Where it came from, I will not know to this day, and that is my personal favourite. All right, thank <laughs> you. Yeah, just... thank you. <laughs> Paul. Paul, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Uh, food banks, uh, recently, uh, well, yesterday, um, was Len- sorry, Lee Andrews MP right to say that budgeting and cooking skills should be given out at the same time as food parcels? And should these be a core issue, a core subject at schools. Lee Anderson actually is his name, and he's, the... Sorry, he's a former miner yeah. who won the formerly Labour seat of Ashfield, and he speaks his mind. He's... he's nearly as blunt as people from Yorkshire, I can tell you. <laughs> um, he's right. Some have condemned him, but he's right. Actually, a lot of people have lost basic cooking skills. Yes, very much. We rely on apps on phones... Yeah. That's why all these sort of motorbikes driving around with pizzas and goodness knows what, and we wonder why we've got an increasing problem with obesity in young children. Yes, there are people on hard times and food banks are very, very helpful and in many parts of the country, very necessary. There's no question about that. But is Anderson right to say, with a bit of help and a bit of education, and that can start very early at school... Very much so. You know, people could buy potatoes in bulk on roadsides. or You know, there are ways that people can do things to help themselves and get those bills down. There is a chronic lack of education in terms of nutrition, in terms of food, um, and we will be, within three years, the fattest nation in Europe. Yeah. And that is down to... dumb. I mean, it's partly down to kids playing on phones and not mm. playing football, but yeah. it's as much as anything down to lack of education. So, Anderson, on the money, he was right, in my opinion. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Andy! Hi, hi. hello. Do you foresee problems in the move towards a
6: cashless society?
2: I see state control, I see government regulating every aspect of our lives, mm-hmm. knowing where we are, when we're there, and the argument that, oh, well, you've nothing to be afraid of, well, actually, frankly, the way some of the police forces treated um, people during lockdown, mm-hmm. harassing mm-hmm. them, um, chasing them... Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you get as many crooks with online transactions, as you'll get carrying Arthur daily style wads. And I do not want us to move, I do not want us to move to a central bank digital currency. They will control every aspect of our lives, including, including in years to come, saying, oh, you know, you're spending too much money on alcohol, let's have someone go and knock on your door. I mean, they'd be at my place every week. So, so, so no, I, I really, I'm concerned about it, genuinely. Thank you. Thank you. Julie! Julie, hello.
5: Hiya. Hi. I want to ask you, yeah. how many people do you know that have got a tattoo on the body of you?
2: There was one that I met, and she had one on the arm, and right. that's the only one I'm aware of.
5: Well, I've got one. Do you want to see it? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> don't look anybody, for goodness <laughs> sake. Come on, let's have a look. Excuse
5: where it is. Well, there
2: we go. Wow.
1: Oh my goodness, man. <laughs> um,
2: It's not often, um,
1: <laughs>
2: Julie, that I'm lost for words <laughs> or go red. Oh, <laughs> bless but you've managed it.
1: Well done, mate. <laughs> Thank
2: you. <laughs> yeah. Very and finally, I've got time for one more. Last one is John. John, good evening.
6: Evening. How do I follow that. (laughs) Um. Don't try,
1: please.
6: (laughs) Um, Do you think that the uh, removal of illegal
2: immigrants from the UK to Rwanda will actually happen or will it get turned up by the courts? I think Priti Patel wants it to happen. I think she's determined for it to happen. But unfortunately, we're stuck with something called the ECHR, the European Convention on Human Rights, put into law in the form of the Human Rights Act. I mean, it took us ten years to get rid of Abu Qatada. You know, it's very, very difficult to get rid of people when they claim right to family life or whatever, you know, own a cat, right to family life, Article 8. I mean, you can't believe some of this stuff. If we sent people to Rwanda, that would be a massive disincentive on paying five grand to a trafficker to get you across the Channel. I think they're going to get caught up in legal knots and I just want them to be truthful. The reason they're getting caught up is not because of lefty lawyers, as as Boris says, it's because he didn't have the courage in the Brexit deal to take us out of that convention. Our own British common law, our rights that have evolved since Magna Carta, since 1215, are far better than anything we can get from a court in Strasbourg. And that's my view. Thank you very much. Right. OK. Well, that was a, an unusual barrage. The barrage, it's time in a moment for Dean Windass to join me for Talking Pines, Hull City hero. Back in a second. on talking fights by a man who is, I think he's a bit of a local hero. You see, Hull City Football Club had never, ever been in the top flight of English football, but that was until a day at Wembley in 2008 playing against Bristol Rovers, uh, Bristol City, I apologise, and there was a man there that scored a spectacular goal and it took Hull City into the Premier League. Before I introduce him... Let's have a look at the goal he scored. It's a cracker.
1: Camber attack. It's Nick Barnby. Windass to his right, Campbell to his left. Helsinki's his top scorer, Fraser Campbell. A slip by Lewis Carroll. Windass. Quite simply, destined to be from team Windus clinical volley, a vital
2: step forward, and who knows, maybe that's the moment from the hometown boy, but for 104 And <laughs> the man who scored that goal is Dean Windas. Dean, welcome to Talking
3: Pines. Very good to see you. <laughs> Thank you. Ooh. Every time I watch it, I think I'm going to miss. <laughs> what a magic moment. Yeah, it was great, obviously, for myself, being a local boy. That that was yeah, the main yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, but obviously for the city, we'd, we'd obviously just got the city of culture as well. So obviously then that put us on the map as well. But obviously everybody sort of talks down about Hull sometimes, all of, well, nearly all the time. But now we're starting to, to make our mark, really.
2: You must have been a proper blooming hero after that.
3: Listen, it's, 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 listen, it's Roy the Rover stuff, as my dad used to say, you know, when I got when I got released at the age of 18, you know, to say that wasn't good enough. And then to come back at the age of 39... Yeah, cos you started off... Playing football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started. Well, I used I trained there when I was twelve year old as a kid, going right through. And then Brian Horton, the manager at the time, 1986, I think it was, when I was 18, he uh, said I wasn't good enough. And my dad said it's one man's opinion. Go prove him wrong. And ironically, he was the assistant manager that day. Brian Horton. So. <laughs> uh,
6: yeah.
3: And did he say I was wrong? Well, after obviously at the end of the game. I, I don't know how I got man of the match because I was rubbish, but it was just, it was about the goal, obviously. And I got like a tank and like a, a thing, what I got. And I, I went to give it to him to say that, obviously, if you wouldn't have done this, he'd probably, oh, this probably wouldn't have worked for me. And he just whispered in me, uh, I knew he'd proved me wrong. So. Uh, well, there you go, you did. But you did. I know he was lying. So.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Dean, growing up, growing up, in how your hull all the way through, aren't you? Like a stick yeah. of rock with hull. Yeah. Written through you, despite the other clubs you went and played for in your career. But Mm. Hull is it. What was it like growing up in Hull?
3: Yeah, it was tough. Obviously, you know, my my dad was a fisherman as well. So, um, yeah, it was just, listen, there was one of them situations where there was no academies in them days. You know, you're just playing for your school team, your Sunday League team. And then if you get spotted by a a scout, my dad used to say to me when I was playing at Picky Park or, or Costello, there's an old man walking with a dog, you know, with a flat cap on. You know, he's a scout for Liverpool. It wasn't, it was just a lad off the council. <laughs> but that made me, that made me wanting to play better, you see, so you're thinking that you're going to get spotted. But it's totally different now, because obviously my, oh, but my...
2: When you went into this, I mean, you were, the, you were doing the boots and, and doing all the yeah. tough jobs and... Yeah.
3: Well, I, I, my job was just to clean the boots, and then obviously the lads, their swept, obviously south stand at Bulfury Park, and then all the other stands. When it was cold, i just took my time cleaning the boots and keeping my heater on in the, in the room, so... Well, no, it was tough. Obviously, training every day, um, you know, very disciplined. But you know, it was the best two years of my life because obviously it changed my life after that. Really.
2: Yeah, and, and you know, a, a long career, you scored a lot of goals, didn't you? Two hundred and thirty-four.
0: <clears throat> I just funny, I thought you did. <laughs> <try. laughs>
3: It's one of them where, you know, like he speaks people, and you do, and you know, I do after dinner speaking, and then it's one of them situations where you scored that many goals, but they only talk about one.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: Do you yeah. know, which, which obviously changed my life for, for good and bad. But um, you know, it was a situation where, listen, the open top bus in the city, you know, standing on the balcony when I had about eighteen of them pints, <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit, it was a bit stupid, but. Um, I just said that somebody would catch me if I if I fell anyway. But <laughs> it wasn't just about me; it was about the group. It was about the the staff, you know, the chefs, everything that went went with it. Really, just a very special moment. Well, it was for for everybody because who would have thought? You know, when I played for Bradford, we got in the Premier League, and who would have thought they'd have got in the Premier League? And then yeah. for for us to do it, there's a lot of supporters in this room tonight. You know who I, who I know by the face, obviously. And uh, you know, I think everybody in Hull was at, at that? At that game and fantastic, just incredible, incredible scenes.
2: Yeah, and you have got a son who's a professional footballer. Yeah,
3: he plays Sheffield Wednesday now. They just unfortunately got beat in the playoffs. But Jordan, my youngest lad, he, he plays amateur football as well. So, yeah, very proud, very proud. Like my dad was proud of me.
2: How do we encourage more kids to play sport?
3: Well, it's very difficult nowadays. Like you, you've been talking earlier on the show about you know obesity and kids on the mobile phones Ooh. and things Ooh. like that. We didn't have mobile phones when we were kids. It's probably an advantage. Well, it was. Yeah, just you know, I'd come off from school. You, went, you only went in when you was hungry, do you know what I mean? So, um, you know, you're playing on the park and then you go, you go and have your team and then you, you're playing football in the playground. So it's very difficult now, obviously, with, with, with modern technology.
2: And do the schools help enough with sport? I
3: don't think they do. I don't think they do. I think that some certain schools that only just, you know, they only either have rugby or they have football. They should have everything. I, when I was at school, it was hockey. Cricket. And you played lots of sports. Yeah, I played everyone really. Yeah, and were yeah. you good at all of them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't. Oh, right. It's
2: so important to get modest guests on talking no, you know. It really, really. I like just it
3: is. enjoyed. Any, I just just didn't enjoy any sport really. Just yeah. get out there and play because, as you say, we didn't have that te- technology. All uh, all all I did when when I went home was at seven o'clock was watch Hemmadyal and Coral. That's all I wanted to do. So. Uh, <laughs> No, it's difficult now, it's difficult, obviously. You know, my children, when they, were, when they were young, they had mobile phones, but I'd make them, I'd make them switch them off and go out and play in, on the grass, you know? Yeah. So. yeah. I think you're right.
2: <laughs> no, I think you're right. Indeed. There you were, you know, teenager, loving sports, football becomes the game, mm. you're in it, you have quite a long career in it, and then it's over. Yeah. And you had some problems after that, didn't you?
3: Yeah, it's very tough, actually. You know, obviously, you know, I, I try to speak a lot about mental, mental health now, obviously on my Twitter feed and, and, and Facebook. I don't really do Facebook, but I, I put the videos on Facebook. Kerry's, Kerry runs my, my social media, so I'm glad you didn't ask me about politics tonight. I know that for a fact. <laughs> but, but, no, it, listen, it was one of those situations where when you do retire, when, you, when you've worked... You are still lost. Well, when you're a working-class person all your life and, you, and it's hard graft, you know, then you, you want to retire. Do you know, but I was I was fortunate, I was very fortunate, fortunate enough to play for twenty years. But then when it when it does come to an end, it, it is very tough because you're in the changing rooms of twenty five lads every day, having banter, having a bit of fun, playing football, scoring goals, and then all of a sudden, you know, when it comes to an end. You, you listen, you know, I knew I wanted to retire at the age of forty because you, your body can't do it anymore. But then your phone doesn't doesn't ring. Then obviously, then circumstances in life change.
2: And because your football career wasn't just that goal. You were quite a notorious, weren't you, for um, upsetting referees? I just, yeah, I,
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> listen, you're, I, you're supposed I, to say thanks for. I know, me. Yeah, I know, yeah, I <laughs> know. Well, every referee reminds me been always retired as well. But <laughs> listen, I went. I, I, listen, the one thing I did when I when I crossed that white line was wanted to win a game of football to put forward on, on the table for my kids, and and that's all I wanted to do. I give hundred percent every time I went out there. Do you know, I got sent off a few times. But <laughs> How many times? Ten.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah,
3: three times in one game. <laughs> but no, like, I, as you say, I'm on the after dinner circuit and there's a lot of referees on it now. And, you know, and that was just banter. We just had banter. Um, but no, when it comes to an end, it's very, very difficult. And you've dealt with those problems now, yeah? I'm trying. You yeah. know, you have good days and bad days. We all do. Um, but the one thing I do now, and I, I, I'll say to everybody in the room, is that. Do you know, if anybody hadn't, hadn't had any problems, they're lying. You know, and, okay. you know, it's a situation now where I do speak about Sometimes, I, Sometimes I don't. I shut off a little bit. But obviously I've got Kerry there and I've got my, fa- my mum still alive. You know, almost my dad passed away in 2011, uh, which which crucified me, really. Um, but now I speak about it. Do you know, I'm not afraid to, to cry. It's not a weakness. It's not a weakness to, to come out and say, look, I've got a problem here. Do you know, it's well documented. Obviously, documented when when you're in the public eye, because everything goes in the papers. You know, and it's one of yeah. those situations where, for some non your own, you know, you get scrutinised. But I'm not shy. I'm not bothered about what people say. I, I know what I, what I achieved in my life, um, and I'm 53 now. And you know, it's it's been a long journey, ups and downs. But do you know, you, you try to get on with it. But the one thing I try to do now is is, is be honest. Do you know, be honest with myself if I can. But then, more importantly, be, on, be honest with other people who, who, who are around you. Um, and that's what I try to do. Don't try to throw it down people's throats. You know, just be honest that if you are having a bad day, you know, speak to your loved ones. Speak, if you can't speak to your husband or your wife... So don't bottle it up, is what you're Don't saying. bottle it up, yeah, because, obviously, I bottled it up for many, many years. My mum and dad got divorced when I was 12, and it, and it affected me right through my life. Um, and, obviously, then I got divorced, and it affected my kids, and and I said to my kids, speak out if, you, if you've got a problem. So, listen, it's it's always good to talk, I think. And uh, if, you, if you're willing to talk and be honest, and if you are going to cry in front of people, don't be shy to. It's not a weakness. You know, I think you're quite brave.
2: Well, i tell you what. You weren't just good at football. You're good at speaking, too. Yeah. And yeah, I think the fact right. you are speaking out of the way and, and trying to say to other people who are going through a tough time... You know, do something about it, speak to people. I think that's quite inspirational. Yeah I, th-
3: yeah, I just think, like you say, is, you know, don't have a piece of paper in front of you, say, say what you think. Yeah. You know, and that's what I do on the afternoon circuit. You know, I take the mickey out myself a little bit. But it's tough to tell jokes these days without being told off, isn't well, it? Yeah, well, I, don't, <laughs> I, I, le- I leave that to the comedians. I don't, I don't do that. But, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been on the circuit ten years now and it's, you know... I, the one thing about my job is that, obviously, meeting different people every weekend. You know, I'm in Wibbensea on, on Saturday night. Do you know what yeah. I mean? I went there for my holidays.
1: <laughs> you know I mean? so, so no, but listen, it's
3: been a it's been a tough, tough journey, obviously after retirement, but you know, you can't feel sorry for yourself. And I do sometimes, I, I'm not gonna sound perfect, but you know, I, I know everybody in the city. I can walk in any pub yeah. and, and get a free beer, which is good. Um, <laughs> and uh, no, but as you say that you know this this city is a great city, you know, and I'm proud to be born in the city. Well, Dean, I tell you what. <laughs> i tell you what. Terrific, and
2: <laughs> if what they remember you for, for decades to come, are not the other 233, yeah, they're all going to remember the 234th, which put this yeah, put this city into the Premier League, and it's a great thing to be remembered for. I want to thank you for coming on, and talking so frankly, openly, honestly with me on Talking Points. Thank, thank you very much indeed. There's a bit of chanting going on in the background here, and quite right, too, and wasn't that... That was a great story, wasn't it? Great story. But, you know, you can see it, can't you? Young lad, goes into football, becomes a star, suddenly it's all over, and that brings problems in life. But he spoke about it beautifully, openly, honestly, and that was a very good thing. Well, we've had a very good day here in Hull, we really have. Darren McCaffrey and others been out and about speaking to people. It's amazing. London feels a very, very long way away, you know. It really does. <laughs> It does. No, people are friendly here. It's amazing. Um, If you've enjoyed watching this tonight, then the Farage at Large series, we're going to keep taking out round the country with live audiences. I enjoy doing it. I think they enjoy doing it. Some of them even get tattoos of me. I mean, I can't believe it. but But, I mean, there you are. And we're going to be in Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire in two weeks' time. Farage at Large, Aylesbury... Buckinghamshire, two weeks' time. You can get your tickets online, gbnews.uk. And if you want to come, don't hang about, because this one was massively, had a huge waiting list for this one this evening. So if you want to come, please subscribe. Um, I'm going to be b- back with you on Monday evening. We'll see what events bring. There's no doubt, cost of living crisis is going to become the biggest issue in this country over the next few months. Now, to see us out this evening, a local singer, Sam Turner, he's got a song Called God's own country. Listen, listen he's terrific. Listen to the lyrics.
1: We don't need a London sound, we got our own beautiful south. If you wanna know the score, it's London 0 and whole for. Gloucester ain't no stocks to breed And Redden ain't a patch on Leeds. So let us sing louder in the north We made the Human League Pope and Kaiser Chiefs And bet Arctic Monkeys Have stood here before me Oh, I could move to Nashville But I'm in good company Right here In God's own country Said trans right here, and it makes me proud. If Wilberforce was stood around, then he should take a bow. Strange as it might seem, strangers say hi in the streets right here in God's own country. And What would I drink once the working day is through? It's the only place on earth where I can get a proper brew. Oh, I couldn't move to China, but I prefer the tea right here in God's own country.